Today we're going to be talking about the Conjuring Trilogy and briefly on the Annabelle Trilogy, the Nun, and of course the Warrens themselves. Stories of ghost hauntings popularized by the Warrens have been adapted and or have, in, have indirectly inspired dozens of films, television series, and documentaries, including several films in the Amityville Horror Series and the films in the Conjuring universe. So we have to talk about them a bit here. However, The Curse of La Llorona was terrible and loosely connected at best by Father Cord Perez, who was the best part of the movie, in my opinion. And that's about as much as I want to talk about it. <laughs> I apologize if you love if you like the film, but we have limited time per episode, and I I, I just don't want to waste time covering an episode I, a movie I hate. Um, but we can't talk about paranormal investigations, possessions, and hauntings without bringing up our very own Michael Nero, co-created, written by my friend and co-host Steve Sellers. But before we jump into the war. Warrens and the Conjuring Trilogy. Is there anything you would like to say about the Conjuring Trilogy, Steve? Sure. Uh, I came into Conjuring quite a bit on the late, maybe a little before Conjuring 3 came out. So there was quite a bit to catch up on. Still, James Wan is a director that I like and respect quite a bit. I mean, I enjoyed the early Saw films, and Aquaman is one of my favorite DCEU films. So I was willing to give these films a chance, and I was pleasantly surprised by them. Uh, I will admit that I don't know a huge amount about Ed and Lorraine Warren beyond what's been presented in the films and the extras. And the Amityville Horror has been, you know, filmed many times. But I like the approach these uh, films have taken with The Conjuring. Um, there are dramatizations of these real cases, but they're treated as if they're real for the purposes of making a horror film. Uh, that's a pretty cool idea. And I think these films have generally hit the mark for me. I totally like that about the Conjuring films as well. I find it easier to imagine the embellishments happening when I know they're actually investigated. They actually investigated these cases, uh, especially since Lorraine Warren actually backed up some of what we see in the first two films. It plays with your imagination, at least for me, primes me for max effect on the stories I was about to see. But let's talk about the trilogy as a whole for a minute. The Conjuring trilogy itself consists of The Conjuring from 2013, The Conjuring 2 from 20. 16 and the conjuring the devil made me do it from 2021 now in my opinion the conjuring 2 is the best one in the series and i would put it up there with the top horror sequels of all time uh to be fair i'm a huge james wan fan i mean let's go down the list for those of you who might not be familiar with all of his work his first film was a smash hit horror saw and he co-wrote saw 3 i mean <laughs> he had me at hello with that one but then then came Insidious, and not long after that, the films we're going to be talking about today. But I also have to mention Malignant, which was also very good, and of course Aquaman. But I think I've geeked out enough here. <laughs> my, my point about loving The Conjuring 2 the most out of the franchise is that James Wan directed the first two films. But he was also a screenwriter and one of the story creators for part two. He was also producer in the second and third films in the trilogy. You'll note that my, my, favorite, in the, in my favorite film in the franchise 
guys is he was creating, writing, directing, and producing. <laughs> so I might be biased in my opinion here. <laughs> However, Michael Chavez directed the final installment. And while I'm not saying it was badly directed, it was Juan's eye for directing that was part of the feel for the films for me. And and while Chavez was good, uh, he was just different. Uh, and, and it took me took away some of the magic for me. Um, it did not help matters that Chavez directed Curse of La Llorona, and I loathe that film. <laughs> but what was your take on the differences in direction, Steve? And, and do you have a favorite in the franchise as well? Um, I think I'm probably looking at this differently because I haven't seen Curse of La Llorona. <laughs> I thought uh, Conjuring 3 was a perfectly good film for what it was. I mean, even if it wasn't the way that done the way that James uh, Wan probably would have done it. I mean, they picked a pretty good story for Conjuring 3. I mean, Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga delivered as they do in every film they've done. And I felt like the visual style worked well enough. Um, I agree with you that Conjuring 2 is more of a pure Wan film, and that does make a noticeable impact on its quality. Um, Conjuring 2 had a memorable villain with Valak, and he's got some really good scares and some excellent, excellent visual imagery. So I totally see where you're coming from. Um, I'd probably lean to Conjuring 2 as well if I only had to choose one, but I like all of them, to be honest. I get that. And honestly, I can admit that I'm I'm splitting hairs to pick at Chavez's work with The Devil Made Me Do It. Um, they are all good films and, and my favorite films uh, in their particular genre of paranormal investigation. You know, James Wan stated that they tried to be as accurate to real life as possible in the making of the three main Conjuring films, while the spinoffs like Annabelle the Nun and even the upcoming Crooked Man allow them to just explore different subgenres and horror. Crooked Man especially sounds interesting to me. Is they're going to go for a dark horror style fairy tales akin to the akin to the Crooked Man? I don't know. That that just sounds cool to me. Uh, but that's not to say that the fantastical things didn't happen in the Conjuring films too. Uh, but they mixed in a lot of actual facts about the Warrens and their cases that are accurate to what was reported at the time with those embellished elements and. I, I, I will say that a bit of that bit of truth uh, gives it an authentic feel. Uh, besides, it's a horror movie. Clearly, things are going to be exaggerated or even make made up uh, to make things uh, more exciting and incite more fear in the audience. But in some cases, especially as it pertains to The Conjuring 2 and 3, there was widespread news coverage of the events from more than one source. In fact, the Enfield London England poltergeist case in 1977 that was covered in The Conjuring 2 is the most well-documented paranormal case in history. Of course, there was a lot of skepticism both then and now about the validity of the claims of demonologists like Warrens and those who were there. I, but I, I totally get any and all skepticism about the paranormal, supernatural, or parapsychological. These things just aren't experienced by 99% of the world, so to reject it at face value is really easy. As we discussed in that Patreon-exclusive episode, while I do not fear the dead, I do, however, believe in spirits and demons, so there is an added level of intensity to the films for me because of the whole what-if factor. But what did you think about it, Steve, and, and does your belief or disbelief uh, make the film more or less scary? Um, I try to be more rational about the unexplained, but I also try to keep an open mind about it. Um, I generally take the view that if something isn't explainable today, that doesn't mean it didn't happen necessarily or that it's flat out impossible. It, it could just mean that we don't presently have the knowledge to understand it. And maybe one day science might be able to catch up with us and make sense of it. So I, I'm hesitant to just dismiss the encounters completely out of hand because they sound a bit out there. Are some of these stories hoaxes? Maybe. Did the events of the Conjuring films happen the way the films made them out to be? 
Probably not, but they could all have happened as the warrants described for all I know. Um, I don't have a problem with the existence of spirits, at least in theory. I mean, if we accept that uh, what we understand as the soul is a form of energy, then it can't be created or destroyed. I mean, it has to go somewhere. Uh, we know that there's a measurable difference in the weight in the human body after death as well. So the idea that this energy could exist in, as what we know as spirit sounds plausible to me. We just don't know where that energy goes, uh, what form it takes, or what happens to consciousness or the self once that happens. But I'm willing to accept the possibility that spirits exist. And as while it's not fully proven, I mean, there's a rational basis to believe they could be real. Um, I'm more skeptical about demonic possession, but it might be that what we think of demons as demons are just a form of malevolent spirit that we don't understand. I mean, all in all, I'm, I'm willing to suspend my disbelief for the purposes of enjoying the films. I think what's cool about The Conjuring films is that it rides the line between a true story reenactment and a dramatization as a horror film. It's impossible for me to know how much was real and how much of it was made up. But I appreciate that they use real footage that was recorded in the end credits, and they go into depth about what the Warrens experienced in the extras. So even though I don't know how much of this was real, I feel like Juan and the others did their homework. What we see on screen feels true to the Warrens' experience, enough that it could have been real for them. So honestly, the possibility that it could be real, even in some sense, adds to the fear because you just never know. Uh, the fear of the unknown is a huge driver of good horror, and Juan knew how much of it to use. He certainly did. And the line between real and unreal does, as you basically said, get real blurry as you watch the film. Uh, but there's another line the films seem to ride. Uh, one thing that the Conjuring universe does that I really appreciate is the blend of poltergeist possession and witchcraft witchcraft tropes with their own, you know, added twist uh, with alternate or at least embellished history. I, the, I, I don't know many series that do that in, in quite the same unique way. Uh, but let's talk a bit about those phenomena. Um, haunted houses are places believed to be inhabited by the spirits of the dead uh, that are typically former residents of the places they haunt and are, are, are at least in some other way connected with the property. Um, in many cases, these spirits of the dead are believed to have died in some gruesome, terrible, or otherwise disturbing way, or even under paranormal or super, supernatural circumstances like a ritual or a sacrifice. The idea is that it is that it is the terrible event that gives the spirit so much power as typically dead spirits cannot achieve a, any type of corporeal nature and therefore cannot affect this, the physical world. Now, Lorraine and Ed Warren were Catholics, and because of that, they 100% believed in spirits of all sorts. Uh, God is a spirit, so are angels, and for that matter, so are humans when they die. There's a story in the Bible where a witch at Endor calls up the ghost of the prophet Samuel for Saul, and this is not just a story in the Bible. This is presented as factual history. There's another one where Judas Maccabeus met a ghost of met the ghost of Onias, the high priest, in a vision. Peter, James, and John all saw the long deceased Moses and Elijah standing with Jesus when he was in his transfigured form. And one of the more unspoken but hugely influential moments in the establishment of these beliefs in a biblical context was when Jesus appeared to the disciples after the resurrection. Uh, the disciples asked him if he was a ghost, and rather than say there's no such thing as ghosts, Jesus simply said that he was not one and I, I find that interesting so that's the haunted 
that's the haunting aspect of the films. Uh, but they also add a demonic side to these cases. Ed Warren says in the film that fear is defined as the feeling of dread or anxiety caused by the presence or imminence of danger and ghost spirits and entities or inhuman spirits all feed on it. He goes on to explain that there are three stages of demonic activity, infestation, oppression, and possession. Infestation is the whispering and the noises you hear, the smells of rancid meat and the feeling of another presence that ultimately leads to the oppression stage. Oppression is where the most vulnerable person is targeted for possession by an external force, i.e. the inhuman spirit. They break the, they break the victim down with hallucinations, voices in their heads, and feelings of dread and despair. It crushes their will, and once they are in a weakened state, the demon moves on to the final stage, possession. We see these stages and the haunting stuff in almost every film in the franchise, and that's not a complaint, by the way. I love the formula, and that they're able to keep bringing new stories to play with it. Now, that's a believer's look at it, i.e. that's how the Warrens looked at the subject. But scientific investigation has come up with some different ideas, such as hoaxes, environmental effects, hallucinations, I can talk, or even confirmation biases on the part of the reporter. Uh, science would also add that a lot of reports of those events involve someone just waking up or going to sleep, and many others involve intoxication or sleep deprivation. I can tell you from personal experience that sleep deprivation is essentially like dreaming while you're awake there's this weird blend in your mind uh playing tricks that uh the real and the real the real world and your imagination uh just kind of tend to blend each other together and it it's no joke and could easily explain some severe hallucinations things like cold spots and creaking or knocking sounds can be found in most homes especially older homes boards creak pipes make noise winds blow and there are cold spots regardless of suspected paranormal activity but let's not forget one of the biggest factors in almost all haunting stories if there is an expectation of preternatural and of a preternatural encounter it is more likely that one will be perceived and or reported uh that's a good rundown of the bill walks that form what we see in these films um i appreciate that juan took these uh, basic principles that ed warren talked about with demonology and actually made these elements part of the movie's world building so the idea of the three stages of demonic activity really worked in setting the conjuring apart from monsters that we see in other horror films um, I also like the idea that the demons we see in the film speed on fear and grow stronger, which likewise is consistent with the way that the Warrens saw demons in spiritual possession, but they work to build the threat in the films. Um, at the same time, the three stages also fit the idea of the three-act structure. So we're seeing uh, three stages in every film as a natural fit um, from a storytelling perspective. Uh, I also feel that this film gradually moved from the historical into full-on horror through the three stages of demonic activity. And I think that's also part of why the formula works. You don't just want to throw the supernatural elements in at the start with these kinds of films. You want to steadily build that so that when we, so what we see feels believable or feels like it might have happened that way. Uh, I think James Wan is a patient filmmaker, and he just managed to make every element click and keeping just the right balance between uh, realism and horror. Um, I'll also add uh, quickly that um, I like the Catholic elements, and I respect uh, Wan for embracing that side of their story. Uh, Ed and Lorraine Warren were true believers, and they saw the paranormal through the lens of their faith. Uh, they also worked actively with the Catholic Church, with the, which the films also lean into. Uh, a lot of Hollywood filmmakers would probably downplay those elements, but Juan makes the Warrens uh, Catholicism an active part of these films, and I appreciate that he did that. 
Well said. I, I think I think that base really adds a sense of both validity and structure to what we see. You know, the, the church offers order and authority to the setting. Their rules and laws about exorcism and hauntings and about demons offer a hope akin to if it bleeds, we can kill it. But let's talk about the Warrens' history before we dive into the films too deeply. Ed Warren was a self-taught and self-professed demonologist, author, and lecturer. Uh, Lorraine professed to be clairvoyant and a light trance medium who worked closely with her husband. The Warrens believe that demonic forces are likely to possess those who lack faith. To give you an idea of how serious they were, listen to these quotes from them. Ed Warren said that diabolical forces are formidable. These forces are eternal and they exist today. The fairy tale is true. The devil does exist. God exists. And for us as people, our, our very destiny hinges upon which one we elect to follow. Lorraine Warren said the threat of evil is ever present. We can contain it as long as we stay vigilant, but it can never be truly destroyed. Or as Father Cord Perez says at the end of Annabelle, evil is constant. You cannot destroy what was never created. Now, in 1952, the Warrens founded the New England Society for Psychic Research, uh, a.k.a. Nesper, the oldest ghost hunting group in New England. The group included a variety of individuals, including medical doctors, researchers, police officers, nurses, college students, and members of the clergy in its investigations. They wrote several books about the paranormal and about their private investigations into over 10,000 various reports of paranormal activity. And we're not talking about small-time events, either. The Warrens were among the first investigators in the 1975 Amityville haunting, and, and that was actually the case that put them on the map. In that event, a New York couple, uh, George and Kathy Lutz, claimed that their house was haunted by a violent demonic presence so intense that it eventually drove them out of their home. While Lorraine Warren believed them and told the reporter from the Express Times newspaper that the Amityville horror was not a hoax, many believed it was. In 1979, lawyer William Weber stated that he, Jay Anson, George and Kathy Lutz invented the horror story over many bottles of wine. According to writer-investigator Benjamin Radford, uh, the story was refuted by eyewitnesses, investigations, and forensic evidence. But whatever you believe, the Warrens' version of what happens uh, when they investigated the case is partially adapted and portrayed in the opening sequence of The Conjuring 2 from 2016. I was aware of the Amityville horror. I mean, there have been a number of different horror films that drew on that story, though I haven't personally seen them, but... I wasn't aware that Ed and Lorraine Warren were actively part of the Amityville story until I saw the Conjuring films and looked into some of the backstory. Uh, I thought the portrayal of Amityville that we saw in Conjuring 2 was really well done, though. Um, I also like that it had consequences on the Enfield story later, as what happens there uh, and a bit afterwards uh, traumatizes Lorraine pretty badly. So Amityville is treated as a really bad event, even by the Warren standards. And if I remember correctly, even the Warrens regarded Amityville as one of the most dangerous situations they ever dealt with. From what little I know, it seems like James Wan the right treatment. It certainly seems so. It, it's like it all comes back to Valak. It's really no wonder the nun got fast-tracked after The Conjuring 2, but I'm getting way ahead of myself here. Let's talk about the very first film that started it all, The Conjuring from 2013. 
In the real life 1971 case, the Warrens claimed that the Harrisville, Rhode Island home of the Perrin family was haunted by a witch who had lived there in the early 19th century. According to the Warrens, Bathsheba Sherman cursed the land so that whoever lived there somehow died a terrible death. As a side note, Lorraine Warren was a consultant to the production of The Conjuring and appeared in a cameo role in the film. This first film really set the pace and the tone for the series. And I have to say, Lily Taylor, who played the mother of the family, Carolyn Perron, did an amazing job in the film. Uh, you really felt her fear when she was trapped inside the basement stairs, uh, desperately trying to keep a match lit to see what nightmares might be coming at her. Then when the voice says, do you want to play hide and clap? And that boy's hands appear next to her and clap. And she freaks right the hell out. <laughs> I freaked right the hell out too, by the way. <laughs> I know that I certainly felt the panic as I heard her bang on the door and scream to get out. But her home run performance was at the end when she was possessed by Bathsheba. You can easily overlook that performance as you get caught up in the moment. But imagine having to deliver that possessed performance. Sure, there was makeup and sound effects, but she really sold that scene with her work. I was impressed particularly considering that performance probably had to be given many times over during the film. The kids were top-notch as well. There was not a single point in the film where bad acting or even a poor line delivery took me out of the moment. Now that you mentioned that Lorraine Warren was involved in the production, that makes sense. Uh, the original Conjuring uh, feels the most grounded in real events, even though the horror elements can hit pretty hard, especially towards the end of the film. Um, I've written the actors who played the family, too. I felt like they were pretty normal people who were caught up in a frightening situation, and they all sold it. I mean, even the kids were pretty good, and child actors are typically not the easiest people to get those kinds of performances from. Um, I also like that uh, they drew on real New England legends with the Bathsheba character, as those really add flavor. And I love Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga, Zen and Lorraine. I mean, I feel like they both sold uh, Ed and Lorraine, and they have an undeniable chemistry that makes that marriage uh, look convincing to me. They definitely come across as a couple who've been married for decades and still love each other. You're definitely right about that first film feeling so grounded. In fact, building on that, I think that more grounded feeling, as you say, likely brought on by Lauren's involvement in the production, added a sense of legitimacy to the successive films. Speaking of which, let's talk about Conjuring 2. In 1977, the Warrens investigated claims that a family in North London suburb of Enfield was haunted by a poltergeist. At first, it was thought it was uh, through agents of Nesper and then later in person, which is what the film shows. However, the film weaves the involvement of James Wan's nun character into the story by uh, taking it back to Amityville. The Warren's first big case where Lorraine gets a familiar vision about a demon nun, the same vision she got from the Frenchie exorcism. If they continue taking cases, Ed Warren will die and a brutal, a brutal death at the hands of the nun. Next thing she knows, Ed is painting a picture of the nun. And it turns out in the film that that this nun is Valak, and he actually he is actually the demonic villain of Con the Conjuring Two, as it is Valak that is the evil force keeping the human spirit trapped in the Hodgson's house, and causes the disturbances. In reality, the Warrens suspected demonic activity, but the rest of that with the nun was all the writers. So, in that respect, they definitely went off the rails of the events that were reported at the time. In fact, quite a few people who were there or around dismissed the incident. 
as a hoax carried out by attention-hungry children. There are critics who say the Warrens uh, were involved to a far lesser degree than portrayed in the movie, and in fact, had shown up at the scene uninvited and been refused admittance into the home. However, I submit that, that it's possible they just did not know all the facts. Now, you remember me saying that the Warrens founded the New England Society for Psychic Research, a.k.a. Nesper, in 1952? Well, the film states that Maurice Gross and Guy Lyon Playfair worked for Nesper, and they are seen interviewing the girls when the ghost of Bill Wilkins makes his first public appearance on camera there. It should be noted that Playfair claimed that the film greatly exaggerated the Warrens' role in the investigation, and he corroborated the claim that the Warrens were not invited to the infield house, and that nobody in the family had ever heard of Ed Warren until he turned up there talking about potential money that could be made with the case. But as Playfair and Gross were there as members of the society the Warrens founded, i.e. Nesper, uh, it would seem that they were involved with it on some level, even if their appearance there was brief. Yeah, it's true that the Warrens were played up a bit in this film, but at the same time, you can't well downplay the stars of the movie, even if that is more historically accurate. <laughs> so I totally get why the film had to be made this way. Uh, the movie does acknowledge that the Warrens were brought in um, in an unofficial consulting capacity on behalf of the church. And I think that's a good enough compromise, even if it's not a fully accurate film on that point. Um, as for the nun, I think there's just something creepy about subverting religious imagery like that. Uh, the Weeping Angels from uh, Doctor Who, for instance, look extremely frightening, even though they're basically angel statues. And honestly, even uh, given how nuns have, tend to have a reputation for being strict and severe, I think the idea of a demon nun really works. And honestly, the visual design they chose hits the mark well. I mean, it feels like something out of German expressionism with the black and white visual elements. Well said again, my friend, and, and I will add that you are so right about the creepiness of subverting, subverting religious imagery like that. Those angel statues in the Doctor Who episode Blink were scary as hell. It's probably why Blink is my all-time favorite Doctor Who episode. Uh, granted, the mm -hmm. angels are, are not a, a bo as bone-chillingly terrifying as Balak, uh, but it is definitely in that same vein of taking something you're supposed to trust, like an angel or a nun, and making it something harmful. It, it digs at the fear of defiling the established good, which basically leaves the faithful with no hope. You know, if, if the good can be corrupted, what hope do we have kind of a thing? But let's talk about mm -hmm. Malik for a minute. In The Conjuring 2 and in its prequel, The uh, the nun, we find out about Balak. In the film, they call him the profane, the defiler, both names I'm guessing because he took the blasphemous form of a nun. But they do mention a trait Balak is actually known for when the when Lorraine calls him the Marquis of Snakes. And Balak is known for being able to summon and control snakes. Balak is a two-headed dragon, or in some cases a boy riding a two-headed dragon. But in either case, he has great authority. The Lesser Key of Solomon says that Balak is the 62nd spirit and that he governs 30 legions of spirits and demons that's a lot folks uh balak mm. must give true answers also to finding hidden treasures which is not something common to demons hmm. that's interesting i wasn't aware that balak existed in biblical lore i just thought it was a cool name for a demon and moved on but that information does add to the character of balak that we see in the film 
It really does. And I love how much homework Juan did in creating his ultimate villain for the series. It really adds layers to the character for those willing to dive in and look, or for those willing to listen to this podcast after me and Steve have dug into it for you. Um, so we're not going to spend a bunch of time on the spinoff series from the Conjuring trilogy. Uh, we are going to talk about Annabelle in, uh, in a few, uh, but we are going to talk about the nun here as it directly correlates to the story from the Conjuring 2. I guess one of the things I'd like to bring out is the total tease that may or may not mean anything in the form of uh, Thaisa uh, Farmiga playing Sister Irene in The Nun. Um, she obviously looks like her sister, Vera Farmiga, who plays Lor uh, Lorraine Warren in the Conjuring franchise. So that jumps out as a flag to anyone familiar with the franchise. If they look alike, are Sister Irene and Lorraine Warren uh, related? If it was just about that, I might have been able to ignore it. Um, but Sister Irene exhibits the same clairvoyant powers that Lorraine Warren has in the films, which seems to further connect the two characters. Honestly, my first time through the film, uh, I thought Sister Irene was a direct ancestor of Lorraine Warren, and perhaps the first in her, of her line with such powers. But revealing the year as 1952 means, uh, means that Lorraine would have been 25 at the time, uh, which again is odd because that appears to be about how old Sister Irene is in The Nun. But this is apparently much ado about nothing, as there is, according to what I can tell from interviews and articles, no connection between the two. However, I'm with Thaisa Farmiga in thinking that uh, if they ever do connect the two, it will likely be in a clever way that we're not expecting. I mean, nobody expected the nun to connect with uh, both The Conjuring and Annabelle creation as a prequel, and yet it did. Yeah, I think there's an undeniable resemblance between the Farmiga sisters, and that struck me as well. But after a while, I just figured there wasn't any kind of lore, real lore-related connection, and I just moved on. Uh, if I were to guess, uh, Thaisa was brought in at least partly to maintain a thematic connection to the Conjuring films, even if none of the characters are directly connected. Um, I feel like Thaisa's presence gives a certain sense of continuity for the viewer, even if, as you point out, there are a lot of reasons going against the idea of the characters being related. Um, if you want to try to headcanon a reason for why they look alike, I suppose you could try, but that would feel forced to me, and I don't feel like it's necessary anyway. I agree. Well, it was a fun idea to start with. The facts just wouldn't line up. For the record, though, I think you might be on to something about the pseudo-continuity feel. Uh, but the studio claims it was pure coincidence that they hired Vera's sister, Thaisa, because she was the best fit for the role. Uh, but back to the nun movie itself. I, I liked the origin for Valak becoming the nun. Uh, we get the story in the film when Sister Oana uh, reveals the Abbey's history. It was built by a duke in the Dark Ages, uh, the Duke of St. Carta. He wrote countless books on witchcraft and rituals to which to call upon the forces of hell, which we actually see in the coffin Father Burke falls into as he gets buried by Valak. Uh, they showed the Duke of St. Carter with five bodies with bags over their heads, bleeding onto the altar, or what would become the portal hanging from above, their blood forming a five-pointed star within the circle. They go on to say... Uh, that hell used him to open a gateway so that unspeakable evil could walk among us. As that stone circle cracks and blood begins to rise up through the cracks, out of the blood arises Valak as if he's coming together on our plane, something akin to what Frank Cotton was doing in Hellraiser with all the bodies that were being brought to him, uh, like blood is a conduit. 
Anyway, as Valak is still assembling, knights from the Catholic Church burst in and kill the Duke of St. Carter and seal the rift with a sacred and ancient relic containing the blood of Christ. The church claimed the castle and made it into an abbey, and they started a perpetual prayer vigil to keep Valak at bay, so Valak and the blood sank back into the rift. For centuries, this worked to keep the evil of Valak held back, but during World War II, bombs were dropped in the area, and evil found another way to open the gateway, <clears throat> and the rift was broken up again this time freeing Valak. Now Valak preys on the weaknesses of the nuns in the cloister, appearing to them in different forms and eventually taking the form of a nun to blend in with them. Huh. That is a really good backstory, and I feel like it was well thought out and it all makes sense. So if I'm honest, for much of the time uh, I was watching this, I was reminded of a movie called Black Narcissus, which I recommend seeing if you haven't. It's a really beautifully made film. Uh, that film also features a nun who travels to a faraway cloister in this case, India rather than Romania. And it also deals with the corruption within the sisterhood that turns to madness and murder. I feel like the nun draws a little on that formula, uh, adding the element of Valak and the uh, demonic and magical backstory to take it to the next level. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, James Wan had seen Black Narcissus and then he had ideas for a gothic horror story building on that premise. And I'll be honest, it totally works if that was the plan. <laughs> That's that's interesting. And from what I can tell, just about everyone in the film business studies other films. And it would not surprise me either if that was an influence. So good call there. And, and for the record, I have not seen the film, uh, but I will check it out if I come across it. Um, but right now it's confession time. <laughs> so, you know, the part in the nun where Sister Irene is in that room and she sees Valak's shadow in the form of the nun walking around the walls and eventually going behind the mirror and then appear behind Sister Irene in the reflection. Uh, that scene was pretty intense the first time I saw it. So I was all wrapped up in it. When the, when the mirror shatters after Valak, Valak suddenly appears with his hand on her shoulder, that would have startled me enough on its own. Uh, but I live in the high desert and we get some burly winds up here. So picture this huge gust of wind. It rocks my trailer just as the mirror shatters and Valak appears with his hand on her shoulder. The combination scared the living crap out of me. I swear my heart leapt out of my chest. It totally took me a minute to come back down again. Totally understandable. I mean, that was a really creepy moment and it reminded me a bit of Dracula's shadow trying to strangle Jonathan Harker and Bram Stoker's Dracula. Um, but let's get into the bit of the context of that scene. I mean, one moment that really got me was when uh, Demian Bashir is ex exploring the graveyard and he gets attacked by a snake and then he falls into an open casket. Valak then buries him alive in the casket and Sister Irene has to try to find him and get him out. So Valak is messing with Irene in this patient, cruel way uh, while the priest is buried in the graveyard and slowly running out of air. Every moment Irene wastes inside the convent is one less moment that Demian Bashir has to live and Valak knows this. Valak is extremely sadistic in this film, I have to say. Oh, yeah. That scene was intense as hell. And without intending to rhyme, it was in large part because of the bell. 
uh, they made a point of telling us earlier in the film that bells were installed because there was a real fear of being buried alive and not and not an unsubstantiated fear either. Folks really did get buried alive back in the day. So every time that bell rings, it brings a greater sense of urgency to the situation. I would liken this unto the death of Boromir in the Lord of the Rings as he defended Merry and Pippin. For those of you who do not know, the sounding of a horn uh, in, in those in ancient times uh, is an urgent and desperate plea for help. And all who hear it in the fellowship are meant to come to the aid of the person blowing the horn. So as Boromir fights off the Urukai and is shot by arrows again and again, he sounds that desperate horn, with, and but no one comes until it's too late. That, that ringing of the bell in the grave by Father Birch had a similarly gripping feeling on my heart. Oh, I can totally understand that. And that's a really good connection you made with Lord of the Rings and the Court of Gondor. Uh, meanwhile, Boromir, too, is fighting off the corruption of an evil influence, choosing ultimately to give his life rather than surrender to it. So that works pretty well for me. Thanks, man. So now we have to switch gears to The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It, the final film in the trilogy. I want to say right off the bat that I heard people had to leave the theater because they were so terrified watching the film. I even heard talk about it being one of the scariest movies ever made. Uh, with that kind of hype, I was expecting a lot from the film, and, and it, it just didn't deliver. Uh, but honestly, I think the hype ruined the film for me. Uh, it is a good film, and I like the, the story, but at no time was I scared. I was on the edge of my seat a time or two, but, but just not scared. So honestly... Uh, I honestly don't know what it is that freaks people out about the film so much. How, how was it for you, Steve? Were, were you so scared that you had to quit watching or, or, or were you even scared at all? No, I, I wasn't all that scared for the most part, although there were some creepy moments in it. Uh, certainly nothing that I recall making me want to step away from the film. But I also wasn't steeped in the hype for Conjuring 3 like you were. So I think my lowered expectations is probably why I liked it more than you did but I can enjoy a horror film if it's otherwise well-made, even if it didn't scare me a whole lot. That totally makes sense. And you're very likely right about listening to the hype ruining the film for me. I got to quit doing that. So the last film in the Conjuring trilogy is The Devil Made Me Do It, taken from the name given to the case the film is about. In 1981, Arnie Johnson killed his landlord and, uh, at the insistence of Ed and Lorraine Warren, pleaded not guilty by reason of demonic possession, hence the nickname for the case. Of course, the judge ruled that demonic possession could never be proven, and so their defense was rejected, and Arnie Johnson was convicted of first-degree manslaughter and sent to prison for 10 to 15 years. However, Arnie only served five years of that sentence and by all reports now lives a happy life with his wife, Debbie. But can you imagine a world where anyone could claim that the devil made them commit a crime and get away with it? Well, that's the world we would be living in if that defense had been recognized and honored. You know, I thought it was crazy that there was ever a case of not guilty by reason of demonic possession. <laughs> I mean, if you told me that such a thing had happened before I saw this movie, I'd have thought it was a joke. Uh, in the real world, it would make a mockery of the legal system. So I totally get where you're coming from. At the same time, uh, if you're dealing with a world where demons really do exist, how many innocent people might be suffering for the crimes committed by the demons that possess them? It, it's a rough moral question, but then it's not one that the legal system is really built to answer. It is not equipped for that at all. But I did like that Ed Warren said in the film that the court acknowledges the existence of God every time someone swears on the Bible that they will tell the truth. 
maybe it's time they acknowledge that if one is true, so must be the other. But even if the law were reworked to deal with something like that, like with how they deal with the insanity plea, for instance, it would be taken advantage of to the point where it would lose its legitimacy. But let's talk about the case and the film. Uh, the whole thing started back in 1981 with the alleged possession of Debbie's uh, 11-year-old little brother, David Glatzel. David, de David described a demonic beast called an old man who spoke Latin and threatened to kill his family and take his soul. His family apparently witnessed David being choked and beaten by an unseen force, even leaving red marks on his skin. And they even heard strange noises up in the attic, but no one except David saw the old man. David eventually started having night terrors and getting unexplained bruises and marks, and that's when the Glatzels called a Catholic priest to come bless the house. But the blessing was ineffective, and for 12 more days, David suffered, and that's when the Glatzels called Ed and Lorraine Warren. Lorraine says that she saw a black uh, mist appear next to David, indicating a malevolent presence. David hissed and growled as three lesser exorcisms were performed. Over several days, David, too, spoke Latin like the old man that haunted him and even quoted the Bible in Paradise Lost. The Glatzels later talked about having a family member stay up each night to be with David as he suffered through spasms and convulsions. Lorraine Warren says that during this time, David levitated, ceased breathing for a time and even foretelled the manslaughter Arnie Johnson would later commit the next year. The movie differs in that in their depiction of young David's torment, uh, but the overall idea is there in, in, in there is that what you need to know uh, to tell Arnie's story is that David was possessed and that Arnie asked one of the demons that was supposedly in David to enter him instead. And that started the roller coaster that would be Arnie's life for the next year. In 1981, Arnie, uh, Arnie Cheyenne Johnson was accused of killing his landlord, uh, Alan Bono. Uh, in the movie, Arnie believed he was killing a monster or perhaps even something more sinister like a demon. They are not totally clear about it. Uh, there's even a scene or two where it seems like Arnie is imagining that Bono is getting fresh with Debbie, Arnie's now wife. Uh, but whatever the case in the film, Arnie stabbed Bono 20 times. <laughs> but in reality, uh, uh, the, the, in the actual case, uh, Arnie, Arnie actually only stabbed him uh, four to four or five times. Um, and one of the wounds actually went from his stomach clear up to his heart. Now, I don't know about you, but that last one sounds like it's worth at least a few wounds on its own. <laughs> but that is neither here nor there. Uh, the case was described in the 1983 book, The Devil in Connecticut by Gerald uh, Britter, uh, Brittle and Lorraine Warren. Um, I admit I don't know too much about the real Arnie Johnson case beyond what was presented in the film and some of the extra features, but Overall, I don't think the reenactment of it uh, that we see in the early part of the film is too off, far off from that description. Um, I did like the way that the film connected it to the Glatzel case, where it was the same demon that ended up possessing Johnson. Um, I think it gives the film some emotional weight because uh, the movie's about the Warrens putting the Glatzel case right while also trying to solve the Johnson case. Um, at the same time, uh, Conjuring 3 also addresses Ed's heart problems, which were real. Um, uh, if I remember right, Ed actually died of a heart attack in 2006. And he did suffer from cardiac problems towards the end of his life. Um, so for the purposes of the film, I think it works on a dramatic level as it makes Ed have to slow down a bit and it gives Lorraine something to struggle with emotionally. So the grains of truth presented in the film add value to the dramatization of the events. But uh, why don't we uh, talk a bit about Annabelle and where the spinoff series came from? Sure, Steve. 
I would like to point out that while Annabelle is certainly James Wan's most popular evil doll, she is not the first. Back in 2007, James Wan released Dead Silence about an evil doll named Billy who owned uh, owned by the wicked Mary Shaw. Mary Shaw was a talented and famous ventriloquist in her day, and she had a big head about it, apparently. At one of her shows, Mary was humiliated when a young boy named Michael Ashing claimed that he could see Mary's lips moving during her performance. In later weeks, young Michael turned up missing and was in fact killed by Mary Shaw in revenge for her humiliation. But Michael's parents knew that she had killed Michael and they lynched her for it. During the lynching, the family forced her to scream and then permanently silenced her by cutting out her tongue, making her a twisted mockery of one of her dolls. Since then, Mary has sought out those of the Ashen family bloodline in the town of Raven's Fair and kills them, kills all of them that she comes across in a likewise manner if they even make a sound, hence the name Dead Silence for the movie. Mary's last wish was to have her body turned into a doll and buried with her 101 dolls who she called her children wow uh that's interesting though um it's not unheard of for a writer or a filmmaker to return to an old idea then refine it until they get it right it sounds like james wan went back to it when he found a better way of using that idea but then there's something really creepy about antique dolls that makes them an inspiration for horror stories uh, i remember the supernatural did an episode focusing on these creepy porcelain dolls around season two or so as well but it seems like Annabelle really caught away, uh, caught on in a way that Juan's previous attempt didn't. So do you want to get into that, Mike? I sure do. Uh, the first Annabelle movie opens up with the perfect quote to describe Annabelle. And that is this. Since the beginning of civilization, dolls have been beloved by children, cherished by collectors, and used in religious rites as conduits for good and evil. Within the Annabelle trilogy, you see all of those things happening. In the first film, the doll was beloved by a child who grew up to collect and cherish them, and you see the cult of the ram performing murderous rites. In Annabelle creation, we find out that Annabelle was even made for a young girl named Annabelle Higgins, and that is where she gets her name from. Then in the final installment in the Annabelle trilogy, uh, we see her being used entirely as a conduit for all of the evil and possessed thing in the Warren's Occult Museum. Well, there are scary parts in all three Annabelle films. I have to say the scariest bit was at the beginning of the first Conjuring film. It's also the most telling bit about the doll. Now, in real life, Annabelle was not the creepy porcelain doll that she is in the movie. She was, in fact, a Raggedy Ann doll that millions of children had at the time. Hell, me and my sister even had Raggedy Ann and Andy dolls as a kid. But beyond that, that opening scene in The Conjuring and Annabelle was fairly close to what actually happened back in 1968 when those girls told them about the doll. For a while, it really seems as if Annabelle is possessed by the soul of the, uh, of the young girl whose father created Annabelle. We see the doll leaving the same messages that we saw in Annabelle creation with the, the miss me uh, question. Of course, in both cases, it's a demon or inhuman spirit that's moving the doll around and making her seem as if she's haunted. In both cases, the young girl Annabelle is used as a means of breaking down the victim and making them weak. Although it was more intense in Annabelle creation uh, with the mother and father losing their child and the demon using that hurt and suffering to its advantage and adopting the Annabelle persona. Oh, man, I really need to get into the Annabelle films, but I did love the scene from Conjuring 1 that you mentioned. That movie pull off a really neat twist with the misdirection, 
but it also fits well into the style of the Conjuring films. It, it says a lot, too, that the Annabelle doll is one of the most dangerous artifacts that Ed Warren keeps down in his basement with all the other haunted relics he collected, including the lamp from the Enfield case. Um, I'll be honest, I love that Ed and Lorraine have this trophy room uh, full of these insane and dangerous things they're trying to keep locked up so they can't find new victims. I do too. I also like that there was a solid explanation for keeping the museum. Destroying the items wouldn't do anything to the evil that inhabits them or uses them. While they are attached to the items, it is easier to, as they say, take guns off the streets in a supernatural or paranormal sense. They are, in essence, containing evil. So, uh, from here, uh, we got to move on uh, to our last topic. And the last thing I want to talk about is Omen Comics' own paranormal investigator and demon slayer in the form of Michael Nero. Now, I created Michael Nero with the third sight, which allows him to see every plane of existence all at once. It's not the same, but I find it interesting that Lorraine Warren was clairvoyant, and both her and Nero are paranormal investigators and demon fighters. In fact, when we first see Michael Nero and White Drew to Michael Nero number one. He's casting out Cacophonus of the Seventh Veil. Um, however, while Lorraine had to suffice with Ed Warren, Michael Nero's partner is actually an Irish deity named Lu Oshi, a half Marian and half Tua de Danning god associated with the Beltane Festival in Ireland. However, while it created the characters, while I created the characters, it took Steve Sellers to perfect them. So why don't you talk about Michael Nero, Steve? Yeah, I'll be glad to. Uh, you gave me a lot of material to try to sift through and make sense of. Uh, I know that you had the idea for a Michael Nero Demon Slayer and other things that were part of the process before I got to him. And I occasionally get told that Nero resembles other characters like uh, John Constantine. Um, now, while I get where people get that impression, uh, that honestly wasn't what I was thinking of when I was developing Nero. Uh, the impression I always got with Nero was that he was a modern-day Sherlock Holmes, except that he specializes in magic-related cases. So Nero will deal with a haunting one minute and a serial killer the next. You know, he'll work with private individuals or the police as he needs to. But he's not a con artist like Constantine is. I mean, his problem is more like Holmes in that he tends to tell blunt, unvarnished truths at the worst possible times. <laughs> um, I, I think what sets Nero apart from me, though, is the third sight and how Nero attempts to cope with his ability. Um, he has this prickly demeanor, which is largely his way of dealing with the insane things he sees constantly. You know, he comes across as a sarcastic jerk who likes to show off how smart he is. But a good part of that is a cover that he wears as a coping mechanism. But underneath all that, he does genuinely care about the people he helps. And he takes his duties to his clients very seriously, um, as we see in, in issue two. It, it's this that Lou senses in Nero and what he hopes to encourage in Nero as he guides him. Um, at the same time, uh, Lou is well aware of Nero's self-destructive tendencies like Nero taking his 7% uh, solution uh, to ward off the visions that he can't control. Um, after, after Nero suffers from an overdose, I mean, Lou helped to purify Nero of his drug problem through dru druidic techniques, along with special magical training that Nero uses to cope in a more healthy way. But the temptation to drive, dive back into drugs is something Nero always has to draw it against, and which Lou always is on the lookout for. Now, uh, one thing that I think the, that brings the Warrens together with Dr Nero and Druid, even though I didn't intend it, is that shared sense of family. Um, Ed and Lorraine Warren are a married couple with a daughter, and they have a very strong sense of family. Uh, with Lou and Nero, it's more of a sense of found family, uh, with Lou acting as a father figure that N Nero never really had in his life. Uh, so Lou and Nero are master and apprentice, uh, since Nero is learning, learning the Druidic arts from Lou. But it's very much an adopted father-son relationship, too. 
Uh, that relationship will get more complicated uh, once Lou's biological son, Colin, uh, a.k.a. Ku Colin from Irish Myth, uh, shows up. But the foundation of that dynamic is familial at its core. I, I would like to add that to that nicely done summary of Nero, that my original inspiration for Michael Nero was the Sherlock Holmes story, The Hound of the Baskervilles, where Holmes is forced to confront the supernatural or paranormal. My thought was that I enjoyed that story so much that I wanted I wanted more paranormal investigations. And so I created Michael Nero to fill, fill that role. Uh, that's, that's one of the reasons I love the opening scene in White Druid and Michael Nero number one so much. And, and what convinced me that you really understood the character. Oh, thanks. And it's been fun working with Nero and developing him further. I mean, I'm pretty steadily steeped in Holmes and his various spinoffs, but I like the idea of just dropping a character like that into these kinds of horrifying situations and see where he goes. Yeah, yeah, me too. That it's a, it's a really fun series, and and I'm really enjoying what you're doing with it. Um, but that about wraps up our discussion uh, discussion on the Conjuring universe and paranormal investigation. We hope that you've enjoyed this breakdown of the films. I know this was not our usual style of deep dive, but we wanted to come at it from a different angle, being the films are at least based on real life events. I'd like to take this moment to thank our patrons who make this podcast possible. I hope you've enjoyed hanging out with us on ORP today. I know that Steve and I have had fun making this episode. If you've had fun too, we invite you to please share this episode and help us get the word out. That is indeed a big help. And uh, we want to thank you in advance for your support of both listening and sharing this episode. Uh, it makes a lot to us. Uh, and we'll see you in two weeks.